Good morning. Welcome to First Missionary Church. We're so glad you're here. And I love hearing about Neighbor League from Zane. So thank you for that, Zane. I don't see him here today, but I don't see him here in the service right now. He's probably in the second service later, but thank you, Zane, because when I was in college, I remember uh, we did Neighbor Link at, at Fort Wayne. I was at Taylor Fort Wayne, and I thought, man, we need Neighbor Link here in Adams County. So it's cool to see how God puts that on the hearts of people like Zane and others to start that. And thank you for Don for getting up and praying. Um, Don doesn't want me to single him out, but he loves being in front of people. So thank you, Don, uh, for doing that. <laughs> um, no, I really do appreciate it because how many of you are scared to be in front of people? Public speaking terrifies you. I think I read something that people would rather jump out of an airplane and do skydiving than do public speaking, <laughs> which is probably true. Yeah, so thank you for that. And thank you to our worship team as well. Would you just express your appreciation to our worship team this morning? We really appreciate that. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah in the Old Testament. It's also in the bulletin and it'll be on screen. And if you would humor me for a second, would you stand up? We're not going to read God's word in standing. Here's, I want to do a quick exercise. Would you raise your hands like this? And go like this, this way, and then go the other way, and just kind of move around a little bit. We're shaking off the daylight savings time effect. <laughs> there we go. In the fall, you'll be wide awake, but right now, we lost an hour, so you, you may be seated. Thank you for doing that. That's great. Well, in the book of Jonah, before I read it, I want to talk about... Uh, my preaching philosophy a little bit. Why do we preach through books of the Bible? I mean, there's many different ways we could approach this, but why do we actually preach through books of the Bible? Here's a few reasons. Uh, the first reason is I love how it forces me and our staff to wrestle with all of Scripture. I'm not just picking my favorite passages or favorite topics. I'm picking every single passage. You know, we're just going to go through the book and wrestle with every single one. That's the first reason. Another reason is it forces us to see that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, including passages that talk about weird things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and, I mean, fill in the blank. The Bible is full of weird and obscure passages, and this forces us to deal with those things. A couple other reasons as well. Um, I hope it does serve as a model for you, so when we are reading through books of the Bible and we take it in context, the best way to understand scripture is not just look at one Bible verse, but to look at the whole book, because I heard uh, one of my professors say that a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Did you get that? So a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. You can really twist scripture without looking at it in the whole book. So all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we're going to see that right now. So let's pray, and then we'll look at Jonah 1 together. Father, you are so good to us to allow us to be here this morning to look at your word. I pray that your word would do what it's been doing just forever. I pray that it would encourage us where we need encouraged. I pray that it would rebuke us where we need rebuked. Lord, I pray that it would draw our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, because as we behold the glory of Christ, Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Lord, this all comes from the Holy Spirit. So we pray that your spirit would move right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So let's look at Jonah 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. I'm going to pause to make comments along the way. Let's dive right in, starting at verse 1. And remember, this is about 750 years before Christ was born. So it says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So let's stop right there. Pretty remarkable passage. Almost every prophet in the Old Testament was called to go to Israel and speak the word of the Lord. But where was Jonah called to go? What city? Nineveh. Does anyone know what empire that is? It's the Assyrian Empire. So he was called to actually leave the safety of Israel, go to a foreign nation, a wicked nation, the Assyrians, and preach to them because its wickedness had come up before the Lord. But what does Jonah do? He goes the exact opposite way. So if you look on screen, I found this picture online. It says, Jonah runs. There in the bottom right-hand corner is where he's going to Joppa to find a ship. But he's supposed to go northeast to Nineveh, about 500 miles away. And then do you see where Tarshish is on that map? Very west, over in the Spain area. So he's not just trying to outrun God. He's trying to get as far away as possible at that time. Now, before we give Jonah a hard time, I often would think, what would I do if I was in Jonah's shoes? Do you understand what God is calling him to do here and where he's calling him to go? The Ninevites were a pretty, pretty wicked city, a pretty wicked nation. They were known for their brutal torture tactics and conquering people. Here's how one Assyrian king named Ashurnasirpal II this is what he said about 100 years before Jonah. He says this, this Assyrian king says, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their war warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes. Many of the captives I burned in a fire, many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to their wrist. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the, the eyes of many soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. He even goes on to describe how he would skin people alive and they would hang the skins on the city wall. This is the Assyrian nation that Jonah is called to go to. So if God calls you to do likewise, how many of you would say, yes, this is the call that I have been waiting for, Lord? <laughs> no, we would be terrified. I mean, imagine if God called you today to go to ISIS in the Middle East. Would you go? Or imagine back in the 1940s, God calls you to Nazi Germany to preach the gospel. Would you go? I know I would have some second thoughts about that. Like, God, you, I, don't, I don't think I heard that right. <laughs> Call somebody else. I mean, I think we can sympathize with Jonah before we bash him. Like, yeah, we would have a hard time too. Or even maybe at a smaller level, if I can say that. How many of you, if, when God calls you to go and just share the love of Jesus with somebody, you quickly do it? God put someone on your heart, maybe even this last week, just to go to a coworker or a family member or a friend and, and share and show and talk about Jesus. How many of us are reluctant to do that? So before we give Jonah a lot of beef, we resonate with Jonah. We struggle with this just like Jonah does. And so this takes me to my first point. We're going to talk about sin today, what it is, 
and how God responds. But if you look on screen, here's a very simple definition of sin from Jonah. Sin is simply going our way rather than God's way. Simply going our way rather than God's way. I could define it many other ways from Scripture. There's many images used in Scripture, but this is the image here. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite way to Tarshish. But the same is true for us, isn't it? Even as you think about this past week, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you went your way rather than God's way, at least at one point this past week? Maybe God was calling you to spend some more time with him, and you're like, I'll get to it, God, and you end up going a different way and spending more time on something else. Maybe God was calling you to to love someone in a very practical way this past week, and you end up just kind of ignoring it. Or maybe God's calling you to tell the truth to someone and be honest and confront them, or at least be honest on your taxes, which are due soon, and not fudge, and you want your own way. I mean, I think if we're honest, this past week we have a collection of things in our heart and our mind and our spirit where we went the other way rather than God's way. We are just like Jonah, the prophet, the son of Amittai, it says. As you think about your own life, if we're honest, what causes us to actually go our own way? Why do we act like this when we know better, just like Jonah, who's a prophet of the Lord? I mean, did Jonah really think he could flee from the presence of the Lord? What causes us to go our own way in our lives, you think? You know, I was wrestling with that question, and I think if we go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with Adam and Eve, I think it's just like them. We want to be like God. We think we know best. We question God's logic all the time, like, God, that's, you don't understand. I can't do that. That's, that's not what's best for me, maybe for someone else, but not for me. I mean, we rationalize with God all the time, thinking we know best and that we can be in the place of God. We want to be like God. By the way, before I keep going in verse 4, I heard a great Scottish preacher this week talking about this passage, and he said, isn't it remarkable that when Jonah flees, he just so happens to find a ship going as far away as possible? And then he makes this point, isn't it true that when we sin and go our own way, that we often find excuses and circumstances and ships to back us up. There's always a ship when we want to disobey. (laughs) Instead, we are to hear the voice of the Lord, not our circumstances, but the voice of the Lord is what Jonah neglected, and we do the same thing. Let's keep going in verse 4. It's going to be hard to get through this in the time allotted. We'll try. Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And we'll stop right there. So we talked about sin and what it is. Now we're going to look at two ways that God responds to sin. And it's not all the ways, but two of the ways we see in this text. And the first way we see right here is that God often will intervene in our lives in response to sin. God intervenes in our lives in response to sin. And I need your participation for a second. 
How does God intervene here? What does he do? He sends a what? A storm. Specifically, a great wind, which we understand this morning. There's a lot of wind this morning. God sends a great wind and causes a storm. He intervenes, and it gets so bad that these veteran seasoned sailors are throwing their money, basically, overboard because they want to save their lives. You know, I was thinking about Jonah and how he gets other people involved in his sin. I mean, these sailors didn't ask to be caught up in Jonah's drama. They didn't ask for it. Yet they are now part of what Jonah has brought them into it. And that got me thinking, there is no such thing as private sin, if you think about it. There isn't. Our sin always affects other people. I've heard many people tell me, well, pastor, I mean, what I do in the privacy of my own home, that's my business. And I want to say, no, it's not. It's first of all the Lord's business, but then it's also, it affects all of us. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're just kind of drowning in the sin of pornography and looking at images you shouldn't be, and, and based on statistics alone, chances are there are several here that struggle with this. That affects your spouse and family. That affects your future spouse. So it affects the community. It affects people here because if you are drowning in addiction, I mean, we are glad you're here, but the first thing on your mind is not to come and probably help someone or serve someone or pray for someone after service or one another someone because you may feel guilty and ashamed and trapped. I mean, your sin, whether you realize it or not, it has tremendous consequences around you. It affects so many lives. And that's what we see with Jonah here too. He has brought these other guys into it that they didn't deserve to be caught up in his sin. Yet here they are with Jonah experiencing the storm. And then if you go back to verse 5, what does Jonah have the nerve to do during all of this? And let's say it together. He's what? Sleeping. <laughs> How can you sleep during a storm like this? In the book nook, we have this book, The Prodigal Prophet by Tim Keller. And he quotes another guy and says, I think we've all been there. He calls it the sleep of sorrow. Have you ever just been so stressed and so anxious and so afraid that all you want to do is take a nap? And so you go and take a nap. <laughs> but then when you wake up, doesn't really solve your problem. You're still stressed out and afraid. And I think that's what Jonah's doing here. But God is intervening, back to my main point. And I like that word intervene because, yes, it includes punishment. And if we don't follow the Lord, we will eventually be punished now or when we die for eternity. But God is intervening here because he is trying to wake Jonah up, literally. He's trying to wake Jonah up and say, come on. I'm pursuing you. I, I want you. I want you to see the air of your ways. I mean, in a weird kind of way, God is so gracious to send Jonah a storm so that he can wake him up physically and spiritually and stop running and pursuing him. God is so gracious to do this. In fact, we see this through Scripture that God will often send storms and challenges and trials in your life and in my life to discipline us or to wake us up. In fact, Hebrews 12 in the New Testament says, he disciplines us as sons because he loves us. So maybe if you're going through a storm today, it could be that part of the reason is God is trying to get your attention and say, wake up. How can you sleep at a moment like this? Turn to me. I love you. I'm your father, he says. 
Either way, a storm can make you bitter towards God or it can make you better and submissive if we allow it. So as you think about your life this morning, how is God intervening in your life right now? Are you allowing God to use the circumstances in your lives to make you better towards him or bitter? And I'm not saying every storm in your life is disciplined from God. Don't mishear me. But based on Jonah's story, it could be, depending on what you're going through. Let's keep going in verse 7. There's a lot that happens in a short amount of time, isn't there? Verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. That's kind of like throwing spiritual dice. It's kind of like drawing straws, so to speak. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to which guy? Jonah. Which is so funny because Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So God uses these pagan sailors and their pagan ways to draw out Jonah. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? I mean, you can just probably feel the intensity right here. Give us an answer now. And in verse 9, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So keep that in mind as we go through our series. What is his first answer again? I am a what? Hebrew. He refers to his nationality first. Interesting. Before he talks about God, I'm a Hebrew, and yes, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So, I mean, these are, these are manly men that are terrified. <laughs> these are guys who were terrified earlier because of the storm. They're throwing their cargo over, overboard in verse 5. And now in verse 10, they are scared that Jonah has brought these consequences on them. So let's keep going. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, I've kind of debated here. What is Jonah doing? Is he really being so noble that he's offering his life? Or has he got to the point, it's like, you know what? I can't outrun God. Just throw me overboard. I want to get as far away from the presence of the Lord. I want to die. So is he being noble or is he committing suicide? And the answer is, we don't know. But either way, he is offering himself up as a solution to get rid of the storm. Verse 13 says, instead the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Two things before we go on. Isn't it remarkable that Jonah, who's a prophet of the Lord, is not acting very honorably in this situation and the whole thing, yet these pagan sailors who don't know the Lord are being very honorable and full of integrity and God is using in Jonah's life. That's, that's remarkable. The second thing I noticed too, and you don't see it on screen, but in verse 14 in a lot of Bibles, the word Lord is completely capitalized. Do you see that? Whenever Lord is capitalized like that in the Old Testament, like in the NIV or the ESV and such, 
it's referring to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the personal name of God that God gave the Israelites. So these pagan sailors are starting to call on the name of the Lord amidst this. Let's keep going. Verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And then in verse 17, maybe the most famous verse in this book. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we've seen one way that God responds. One way he responds to us is that he can intervene. And I like that word intervene because he does that in our life. But I also think we can relate to that word. Have you ever scheduled an intervention for somebody in your life? Whenever you have to do that, usually it's pretty serious that this person is on drugs or not doing well. So you get some friends and family members together and you schedule a time to meet with them. And they think you're meeting for one reason and you're actually meeting for another reason. And even though it can be really awkward, the goal of that is to intervene and and help course correct their life. And, And you do it not because you hate the person, but you do it, why? Because you love them. And that's what God often does in our life in way one. But in way two here on screen, God often responds to our sin. He uses our disobedience to showcase his glorious grace. So one way he intervenes, it could be punishment, it could be discipline, but the second way is he can even use our disobedience and our sin to showcase himself, to show off himself, to show how powerful and amazing he is and gracious he is. I mean, just think about this for a second. Without Jonah rebelling and leaving, then you wouldn't have the fish who would swallow Jonah and save him. You see, God is showing his incredible grace that even though Jonah has rebelled, wants nothing to do with God, God's like, I still want something to do with you. And I'm going to save you by swallowing you with a fish where you're going to have some time to think about this. He's showing his grace. I mean, that story is our story where God should leave us to drown in the depths of our sin, but God comes in and he rescues us. Doesn't send a fish, thank goodness, but he rescues us, sends his son and rescues us from our sin because of his grace. I mean, where would we be without God's grace? And he can do that in spite of our disobedience. That's one way of this. Jonah really had no business being saved, and you and I don't either, but God is so gloriously gracious that he can rescue us in spite of us. You know, if you're here this morning, I don't know everyone's story, everyone's heart, everyone's background, but if you're here this morning and you haven't yet given your life to Christ, I mean, could this be the day where God is kind of scheduling an intervention in your life and saying, I want you. I don't want you to drown in your sin. I want to rescue you. I want to swallow you in my grace. I mean, today could be the day, and you may not get a second chance like Jonah did. (laughs) Today could be be the day when God saves you from his wrath. And here's the really good news. The really good news that you and I can be saved from God's wrath and the storm of his wrath is because of Jesus. Now, you may not have noticed this, but in this chapter, we see a ton of references to Jesus. Did you catch it? No, we don't see his name specifically, but there are so many things in here that remind us of Jesus. And Jesus said that all scripture points to him. Let me show you a few. In verse one, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. 
and go. So this often happened in the Old Testament. But when we get to the New Testament, do you know what the book of John calls Jesus? Calls him the Word. So not only does he have the Word, he is the Word. He is God's complete revelation and self-expression. And then in verse 3, it says, Jonah ran away from the Lord when God called him. But I know someone who didn't run away from the Lord when God called him. I know someone who came from heaven to earth. I mean, that's farther than Tarshish, (laughs) Jesus Christ, who came and was resolute. He stayed to the end. He stayed until he died on the cross and fulfilled the mission God gave him. He was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. He's the reason that we can be saved from the storm of God's wrath. Or if you keep going, it says that Jonah was asleep in verse 5 during a storm. Who else in the New Testament was asleep during a storm? The answer, when in doubt, say Jesus, right? (laughs) Jesus was sleeping in a storm, not because he was disobedient, though, but because he was obedient and his disciples were obedient. So that's a reminder that all storms in our life, not all of them are because of our disobedience. You could be obedient to God and God puts you in a storm, (laughs) And Jesus, of course, calmed that storm, not by being thrown overboard. What did he do? He just spoke. It's almost like he just snapped his fingers and boom, it was calm. And then the best parallel to Jesus. So Jonah gets thrown into the sea and it's calm. His life is substituted for many. That reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus was thrown into the ultimate sea, the storm of God's wrath on the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the wrath of God for us in our place, the punishment for our sin. And when he did that, when we believe in him, the storm of God's wrath is completely calm. And of course, Jesus did it because he was perfectly obedient, not disobedient like Jonah. I know a much better Jonah than this one in the New Testament. You see, the reason that he can showcase his grace, the reason that he can showcase his grace to us is because Jesus took the ultimate storm for us. You know, I was thinking of that imagery of the sea in Scripture. This is what's amazing about the Bible. It's one story, right? Amen? It's all about Jesus. Well, think about the sea, the ocean, the waters. They represent chaos. They represent destruction. They represent God's wrath and judgment all through Scripture. And so in Genesis 1, when God speaks and he divides the sea from the land and creates it, we're like, we should be like blown away like, whoa, God is in control of the sea. That's amazing. And then in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, we get to Noah's ark. And God sends a storm, a flood, as a symbol of his wrath to to destroy mankind and really recreate the earth. And then you get to the book of Exodus. What happens in Exodus with the sea? I'll give you a hint. It's the Red Sea. God parts it, showing his power. And the Israelites go across on dry land. And then he brings the sea and the storm of his wrath against his enemies, the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Fast forward to the New Testament. We talked about one great account. Jesus calms the sea by speaking But there's another miracle Jesus does with the waters. Do you remember what it is? What's he doing? He's walking on water. 
showing his power and control. He is Lord of creation. He is God the Father. He's Yahweh. He's in control of that. And then we get to the book of Revelation chapter 21. Did you know there's one little interesting detail in Revelation 21? It says there's no longer any what? Sea, like the ocean. Now, I don't think that's literal. I hope we can swim in heaven. I'd be disappointed. But I think that's an image, that there's no longer any chaos, destruction, or God's wrath. It has been calmed. And the reason that it's been calmed for you and me and for these sailors and for Jonah is because Jesus took the ultimate storm of God's wrath for you and me. He stayed to the very end until he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took that storm for you, for me. You see, God is so gracious to them and to us. You know, I called this sermon God's multifaceted grace. And when I called it that, I was thinking of a diamond. I remember buying my wife or fiance at the time a diamond. And it's amazing when you put the diamond in bright light, as you look at it from its different components, how it is brilliant, it is shining, it's beautiful. I mean, I did such a good job picking that out, you know. It was awesome. <laughs> it's multifaceted. Well, God's grace is a lot like that. When we look at God's grace through its various angles, we see God's grace to Jonah, giving him another chance. And God's going to give him more chances, by the way, not to ruin the story. Just read Jonah 4. We see God's grace to these pagan sailors because, ironically, Jonah tries to flee and not share the word of the Lord. Yet through Jonah's disobedience, God basically converts these pagan sailors to himself. Isn't that amazing? And then, of course, we're going to see God's grace not just to Jonah and the sailors, but to the Ninevites, these wicked Ninevites. Not to ruin the story, Jonah's going to go preach the simplest, shortest sermon ever, and the whole city turns to God. God's grace is multifaceted. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's pray. Father, I know there's a lot of information in that first chapter, but I pray that our congregation this morning, first of all, would be blown away by your grace, that it is amazing, as we sang about. Not only is it manifested to Jonah and to the Ninevites and these sailors, but it's manifested to us. Lord, I think if we're honest here this morning, we see ourselves in Jonah and our tendencies to run the other way, so we confess our sin to you. Lord, some of us may see ourselves in the sailors who knew nothing about you but want to know you. I pray that you would shower them with your grace this morning so that they know you and believe in you and your son Jesus. And Lord, most of all, I pray that your grace would be the center of our lives, that we would never get tired of it, that it would empower us, that it would embolden us to go and proclaim the word of the Lord, that it would um, embolden us to live out the life you've called us to live and to enjoy you so much. Lord, I pray that you would put your finger on everyone's life here this morning and just show them where they need your grace in their life. And I also pray for those who are going through storms this morning. I pray that you would show them that Jesus took that ultimate storm and Lord, that you can use this in their life no matter what reason, whether they brought it on themselves or someone else did, that you can use it for your glory. Father, we ask all these things in the amazing name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people here said, amen. amen.